Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. So let's uh, start. And um, so the first thing is which problems need to be addressed. And you might appreciate I'm not uh, an environmentalist, I'm not a climatologist, so I'm not talking about these specific problems. I assume all that I hear have more or less an interest and have heard about them. And um, so uh, it's climate change, global warming, it's the depletion of the ozone layer, it's deforestation, overfishing, biodiversity loss, you can go on, uh, there are many other examples. I will today focus uh, in particular on the first two here to illustrate a couple of points. Um, <clears throat> just very briefly, if we look at the greenhouse gases, uh, what you see on this slide is that they have grown over the, uh, the past and uh, they are growing and growing. And in fact, if you would go here to 2010, you would see it's even higher. What is remarkable about this graph is that um, it's the OECD countries might here flatten out, but you see that uh, economies of transition and also uh, Asia, they're all picking up. And the growth trend just continues like that. Um, another thing is the substances that deplete the ozone layer. Here you see a different picture. They have grown in the past, and then in particular here you see a peak, which is 1987, which relates to the Montreal Protocol, to which I will allude later on. So you clearly see, after this protocol went into force, uh, those substances uh, depleted, uh, uh, went down, and uh, the only thing we can observe here in, in most recent years, there are some other substances that are kind of substitutes that are slightly picking up, but overall, uh, if you look at the literature, everybody would agree that the Montreal Protocol was quite successful, and that's what we see that all these harmful substances have decreased over time. Um, so if you think uh, there are a lot of environmental problems, what has been done in the past, you find there is a, a database by Ronald Mitchell that actually shows, if you believe or not, there are 1,500 international environment agreements that actually go back to the last century. For example, the Convention on International Whaling uh, dates back to 1946. Um, just a couple of examples here. So some deal with hazardous substances, then you find some on marine and the environment, and uh, today I'm talking a little bit about some of those related to the atmosphere. The first two that I mentioned here relate what is commonly referred to as acid rain. So these are uh, sulfur dioxide, nitro oxides, and um, they have caused, uh, was mainly a problem in the 70s and the 80s. Um, and led to the, what was called the death of the forest. It was quite visible, and action has been taken, and most would agree that in terms of success, it's kind of middle of the road. Then, a very important one relating to uh, chlorofluorocarbons, what I mentioned before, the Montreal Protocol. First, the Vienna Convention was signed, which is a framework convention. It's basically a declaration of good intentions, nothing more. It has been signed by almost all countries, which is about 200 countries. Then the Montreal Protocol actually sort of was the first protocol that took serious action. 
uh, <coughs> requested that emissions are reduced. And the interesting thing is there were what is called amendment protocols. These are follow-up protocols that sort of tighten the emission standards and some of these substances have been completely phased out. And the interesting thing, I just looked now uh, before this presentation at the membership in these different amendment protocols and what you find is even the last one has a membership of 196 countries, which is basically all countries in the world. And as I said, it's quite successful as we have seen the substances that deplete the ozone layer have decreased over time. Another one is certainly the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was signed in 1992. Again, it's just a declaration of good intentions, nothing more. And it was followed by the famous Kyoto Protocol, which was signed in 1997. In terms of climate change, I think most would agree we have not been extremely successful. And uh, let's just give you a little bit of background. So in this framework convention, it was basically agreed that the ultimate goal is to stabilize greenhouses, gases, concentration in the atmosphere at a level that would prevent dangerous anthropocentric interference with the climate system. Later on, this has been clarified and basically the common understanding now is they've been talking about um, keeping the concentration at a level that avoids a global temperature increase of more than two degrees Celsius. Um, as I said, in, the Kyoto Protocol was signed in 1997, but it entered into force only in 2005 until enough uh, signatory countries have ratified it. Um, on the positive side, 38 countries accepted emission ceilings, so there are more members to the Kyoto Protocol, but those 38 have accepted emission ceilings, typically referred to as Annex 1 countries. Um, they aimed at a 5.2% uh, 5 emission reduction to be achieved by 2008-2012. That is called the first commitment period, and it's based on 1990 emissions. What was also uh, very welcomed by political economists is that they introduced flexible instruments to achieve these targets and uh, also introduced sanctions against non-compliance. Um, but on the downside, the US originally signed but never ratified the protocol because President Bush uh, stated that there would be too much uncertainty and for that reason they would not ready, uh, <clears throat> ratify the protocol. The interesting and probably a little bit ironic thing is that the US had in the negotiation always pushed for three things. The first one was that also uh, emerging economies should be part of this protocol because their emissions are growing. But of course you could argue for historical reasons that's rather unfair to ask them to put a cap on emissions. The other thing which is uh, interesting that the US always pushed for the flexible instruments and uh, once they left they were introduced. The EU countries, they were always against that and also uh, were not very much in favor of sanctions. Both uh, were later introduced, the sanctions in 2001 in the Marrakesh Accord. 
Also on the downside, Canada, a member pulled out in 2011, probably being aware that they would not meet the targets, and also some other countries have not met their targets. <clears throat> what, is, what you only find in the Kyoto Protocol is there's a reference made to the second commitment period, 2013-2020. And uh, the understanding by the time the Kyoto Protocol was signed it was that there were already other commitments in place, other emission ceilings, um, and uh, this sort of follow-up protocol um, was never negotiated, is never in place. And of course the big problem is that, for example, if you take sanctions, they actually make reference to the second commitment period. If you fail to meet your targets in the first commitment period, then it was stated that in the second commitment period you have to provide an additional 30% emission reduction above what you would agree anyway. But of course, if there is no second commitment period in place, this is basically an empty threat. So, in the meantime also, if you look at the different uh, reports that have been released by the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, it's very clear that um, emissions are rising and we have to cut down emissions by much more than the 5.2%. So even if you are not believing in the Stern report, um, because some argue they are methodology, methodological problems, it's still the IPCC would argue, if you look at the reports, that we have to cut down emissions by about 50 to 80% uh, globally, which you can imagine means a dramatic change in our pattern, lifestyle patterns, because if you take in consideration that India and China are still growing with their emissions, it means that in industrialized countries we basically have to come to almost zero emissions. So there were all kinds of efforts to negotiate a kind of follow-up protocol. The first one was a COP a conference of the parties in Bali, and you see all kinds of follow-up uh, meetings where they try to negotiate a follow-up protocol to the Kyoto Protocol, which basically would be precise what is happening in the second commitment period. I'll show you now a couple of slides. What you find is they have something in common. All people are happy, all uh, applaud themselves, but nothing has actually happened. So that's the same here in Durban. The same in Doha, they don't look so happy here, but in Warsaw, again, they were all right happy what they have achieved, but it's essentially no commitment has been negotiated what's happening in the second commitment period. So now we're waiting for Paris, where there's the sort of the final meeting, and everybody hoped that it will strike a deal there, and if you believe or not, it's then 2015, and they would agree what happens between 2013 and 2020. So, which methods do I use for the analysis of international environmental problems? So at the political philosophical level, if you want, I'm using um, an approach which I would call political economy rational school. There are different schools. Um, um, there's also the man managerial school, a normative school. I'm not following that. And uh, the basic assumption is that governments behave rationally and opportunistically. Um, what does that mean in particular? 
So first of all, why is there a free rider incentive? Why are not all countries participating in a global climate agreement? And even though if you see these 38 countries, why are they not meeting their targets? And the answer is very simple. The benefits from environmental protection are non-excludable. Essentially, every country can benefit from the emission reduction of every country, but of course, if you take a free ride, you're not entailing any costs. So there's a, a strong incentive not to make a contribution. So why is it difficult to address free riding? And the answer I give you is not meant cynically, which maybe in particular for those that are English, maybe sound like that. It, there's no supranational institution that actually can enforce these treaties. So if you think about environmental policy at the UK level, of course the government, at least in principle, can enforce the law, can enforce taxes, but at the international level that's not possible. And for that reason we're talking about self-enforcing agreements. What we mean is that these agreements have to be enforced by the parties themselves. And of course you can imagine it's very difficult to enforce participation because essentially contributions are voluntary. Maybe slightly less problematic but still not easy is how you're forcing compliance. What you would need is an independent and high quality monitoring system to detect if there's no non-compliance. And for, for, take for example in international fisheries, it's very difficult to monitor the fish catch. There are some agreements that have certain quotas uh, in terms of the, the fish catch and it's very difficult to monitor that. You have to go in the boats and, and check that. That's not a, an easy task. And of course, if you all know that, not only in international environment agreements, but also if you have kids, you need credible sanctions. And that's not an easy task um, because it's not only enough that you threaten to sanction, it really needs to be credible. And the way I define credibility is in a very simple way. Once you are called upon to implement sanctions, the sanctions should not harm yourself. It should harm the other person, but not yourself. And you will see in international politics, there are many sanctions that were never effective. Think about trade bans, where you often, they were not successful, and the reason is very simple, that those that would actually impose this ban would also suffer if the ban would be imposed. Um, let me talk about a methodological level that I use for my analysis. So I'm using game theory, and uh, Charlie, you don't have to be afraid, no math, I promise, is a mathematical method that tries to capture the strategic interaction between different players or agents and likes to predict the outcome of the strategic interaction. So one of the main criticisms you find is, is we would assume too much about rationality. And I tell you that's not true. First of all, people say you cannot be rational because you don't have complete information. Of course, we can model incomplete information. Some people say not everybody behaves like Homo economicus. They are showing some altruism, they're showing some um, social behavior, altruistic behavior, and I can tell you we can capture that. 
in game theory. People say people make mistakes. Uh, people say people have limited memory. We can all capture that in game theory. That's no problem at all. This might be one thing where we have to work a little bit more, and that is that you could argue that people have a limited cognitive kind of cap capability of processing information. That is maybe something where we have to work in game theory to improve upon that, but um, normally I would say it's no problem to assume irrational behavior uh, in game theory. My main interest is very similar to Charlie's interest. He's looking at parties. I'm looking now at uh, the uh, different nations. It's about coalition formation. So this can be informal or formal contracts where people come together and where essentially through cooperation they could benefit altogether if the gains from cooperation are fairly shared. So what are the solving procedures? So my economic colleagues are very fond of analytical solutions, which you need sometimes very simple models. I've also worked with simulation models, very big models that are integrated assessment models that capture the economy, uh, growth, technological progress, a huge time dimension of 100, 200 years uh, from now. Uh, they capture different substitution technology in terms of energy, say wind, solar, uh, conventional energy, and they capture different world regions. And what we have added to that is the, the game theory part to model a strategic interaction. What you could also do is experiments. I've never done that, and I thought it would be a good idea to do it today. And of course, I have to say, this is an experiment in several dimensions. The first one, because I've never done it. Secondly, because we are embracing some new technology we have picked up from e-learning, and it's also an experiment because we never tested it. So, it's excellent you are here, so let's see how things work. So, are you better than anybody else? The following game, assume everybody, I give everybody five pounds. Um, so think about monopoly money. You will appreciate that I didn't give you five pounds. Uh, Kevin's salaries of professors are not that high that I could afford that. But think about you have five pounds, okay? And that's what we call the green is the endowment. That's how you start off. And I'm asking you now whether you want to contribute to finance a climate fund. And you will see, I mean, when I think about a climate fund, is a, a fund that would actually invest in reducing emissions. But of course, you will see this example is much more general. It would also say apply, say, to the faculty of this, uh, of this university. It applies to... Uh, different departments, there are some services where you ask people to make a contribution. Uh, typically it's called good citizenship. Uh, individuals benefit for him, for, from that, but the global benefit is much larger to the university. But there's also a cost to the individual to make a contribution. So you can think much more globally about that. It's not this specific example. So now you have two alternatives. You can denote the five pounds, and the second alternative is, uh, oh, the first, sorry, the first one is that you keep on to these five pounds, no donation, and you can contribute it 
to this climate fund, which I call donation. Okay, these are the two options, very simple. And now, if you donate, you receive a benefit of one pound. You might think this is not worthwhile, but everybody else also benefits and with this one pound, right? So essentially your five pounds generates much more benefit at the social level, but for you individually, it only generates, in this example, one pound, okay? So to give you an example, suppose there are 10 people here and six people would make a contribution. So four don't make a contribution. So if you have not donated, you get this benefit of six, six times one. So six people have made this, this, this contribution. Uh, you still have your five pounds, okay, from your endowment, so your total payoff is 11. Alternatively, if you have donated, you get the same benefit, but of course, you have lost your five pounds. So those that have donated will receive a benefit of six, okay? So now, I'm asking you, to maximize your personal uh, net benefit, your personal payoff. So now <clears throat> the poll is opened and just wait for one second. Everybody has a clicker, hopefully. So you have two options. No, I keep on to my five pounds. That is option A and one on your clicker. It's the same, one and A is one button. And the second one is, and it's two and B, this option on your clicker, yes, I denote my five pounds. So the poll is open, so please make your choice now. So, everybody had a chance to to vote. Okay, then I'm closing the poll. And let's see what happens. So 33 denoted and 17 uh, decided to keep on to their five pounds. Uh, later you can have a drink for that. Um, okay, so let's do uh, the analysis. And um, I just have to enter that. This information now. So, what was it? Okay. So. Okay. So the computer is a little bit slow here, so it takes a little bit of time <coughs> to show you the result. Um, well, here we are. So, if nobody, this is a benchmark, nobody would cooperate, or if all would have said I make a contribution, so uh, would have been 15 contributions. What we actually find, which is pretty good, 33 said yes and 17 no. So now what you see here is the individual payoff. If nobody said I'm donating, kind of uh, what I call no cooperation, everybody would have received five pounds, simply that's your endowment and no benefit. 
Now those that have uh, made this donation, they receive a payoff of 33, and those that, all those that have not donated are better off, 38. This is their endowment difference, five. What you see on the right-hand side is that in total payoffs. So the maximum that could have been achieved is 2,500 pounds in this example in terms of net benefits. And uh, in the experiment, we got pretty close. You see that here in relative terms. So we achieved here 66%. And I think the high success rate of 66 shows that there are many non-economists in the room. <laughs> <laughs> because now I'm telling you what is actually, what should be the outcome. So look at this one here. What, I, what you see here on the horizontal axis is the number of other contributors, right? So I'm now looking at your individual decision, and um, you see here the payoffs. Uh, let's start by assuming that nobody has contributed. So zero other contributors, and that would give you a payoff of one. Essentially, this is your, the benefit of one, and you, of course, lost the five. Alternatively, if you're not contributing, you simply get your endowment of five, okay? Suppose now one other has contributed. Again, if you contribute, then there are two contributors, the benefits are two, and you lost your endowment, but alternative, if you say, I'm not contributing, you would receive a payoff of six. And you can do this exercise now for all different assumptions about the number of other contributors, and what you find is the blue line is always above the red line. So, it always depends not to contribute regardless, regardless how many others have, would contribute. And this is this difference. So what is the equilibrium? Essentially, we ask you what is the outcome in the game? And we say nobody contributes. That's the prediction. Simply because you always have a dominant strategy not to contribute. And you would end up with zero contribution. That's the prediction of theory. And of course, the first out, best outcome would be everybody contributing. So you didn't behave according to theory. And that's exactly why we run experiments to find out whether people are more sort of cooperative than theory predicts. So why is this example too simple? It's certainly sim too simple for a couple of reasons. I assume symmetric payoffs, of course, normally people have different endowments. They would receive different benefits. Uh, the, I assume discrete action, meaning that you could either contribute or not. But normally you might decide whether you want to give one pound or two pounds or three pounds. Uh, I assume complete information, which of course in the climate context and many other contexts it would not hold. I assumed actually a static game, so now you were only allowed to click once. But we know in reality it's a repeated game. If you just think about the negotiations I showed you before, I mean, they're happening, happening every year, uh, every two years, so it's a kind of a repeated game. But of course, it's also dynamic if you think about climate change because it's actually the concentration of the greenhouse gases that matter for the damages, and they accumulate over time. So the game doesn't look the same at each point in time. And of course, if it's a repeated game, then you can start uh, having a communication maybe not today, 
uh, you could talk to your neighbors. And of course, that uh, would also allow you to consider reciprocity by saying, if you contribute, I also contribute. You observe the reaction. If you are disappointed next time, you say, I'm not contributing. Or conditionally, you say, because you have also contributed, let's continue like that. And of course, social norms could play a role and fairness. Okay. So, what have we learned from research? So, let's start with the boring assault, is altruism saves the world. I'm not saying that there is some altruism, that there are some social concerns, but obviously if you have a model where you assume that all are nice to each other, you're basically defining away the problem, and of course we're facing problems. So, now think a little bit more about encouraging results. Um, and of course some of the results you have to think twice. They are not that clear-cut, but overall I'm putting them under the heading of encouraging results. So that might sound strange to you, but concern about disaster can pay sometimes. What do I mean with that? The game we currently face is not the same than in 1992 in the context of climate change. At that time, there was a concern about the global warming, but now things have changed. Now we learned that we cannot avoid, even if we would not emit any emissions now, we could not avoid a global temperature increase of 2 degrees Celsius, right? Even if you completely would stop emissions now. So what we realize is now that we are, might approach disaster. And uh, Weizmann called it terra incognita, meaning if you are above 4 degrees Celsius, we might not even be able to predict about the environmental damages. The reason is simple because this is something we, we cannot forecast. It's, it's a situation we don't know, and it might be a really disaster, as you can see here. And the big question is, uh, if the consequences were re re truly catastrophic, would cooperation be any easier? So we approaching a kind of a disaster would be, be more cooperative. And we could ask, would even the US contribute under these circumstances? And so we asked the question, would the treaties be more effective if their purpose would be to avoid catastrophes? Okay. So once more, I'm asking you are better than anybody else. And we're playing exactly the same game, same situation as before. You have five pounds which you can denote, uh, donate or not. So that's exactly the same. What I change now is the following. I'm setting a threshold of 80% and saying the payoffs are exactly as before. But if less than 80% of in this audience make a contribution, then I'm saying disaster occurs. And everybody would face a loss of five pounds. So just to illustrate that, suppose there are 10 people here and 80% means then a threshold of eight. So, Example one, nobody makes a contribution. You have uh, an endowment of five, and the contribution occurs, uh, the, uh, the disaster occurs, so you're losing five and you're ending up with zero. Example two, suppose six people out of ten contribute. Obviously, you have not met the threshold, and um, this means now if you not, do not donate, you get a benefit of six. 
6 times 1. You have your endowment, but the disaster occurs, so minus 5. And if you donate it, you have 6. This is the benefit, and again, you're suffering from the disaster minus 5. Okay? And finally, I'm assuming that you meet the threshold because you are above 8. Uh, so 9 people contribute, then you would have uh, a benefit of 9. You would have, uh, if you're not donating your endowment, which gives you 14. And those that have donated have lost their endowment and have a benefit of 9. Okay? So now, let's start again the poll. Uh, again, the same questions. Uh, first one, no, I keep on to my uh, five pounds. Alternatively, yes, I donate my five pounds. So now the poll is open, make your choice. Wow, that's the same as before, isn't it? <laughs> you have not been impressed by me saying there's a disaster. How is that possible? I think nobody would expect the same result. Is it reversed? You repeat? Why would you repeat? I mean, this is a... That's just the result. So, again... I see there is some consistency here. <laughs> so again, we have to be patient until we can see the result. But um, from the numbers, I can already tell you, you have not been able to avoid the disaster. So let's have a look at this one here. Threshold is not met, no, because what would have been requested is 43 should have denoted. That's 80%. Okay? Uh, instead, what you see is 37 said, yes, I'm donating, and 70 said, no. And what we can see here is that on, in this panel here, that, of course, if nobody would have contributed, zero payoffs. Now, this is what happens in the experiment. Those that said, yes, donated, have 32. And those that have not donated, again, are better off. In terms of the threshold, that would have been the individual payoffs, and full contribution would have been 54. And what you see here in terms of total payoffs, that's what you have achieved. That would have been the threshold, and that's full cooperation. And uh, in terms of the success rate, it's not too bad, 62, but of course you failed. And don't be surprised that this is 82, not 80. That's simply because it's in, in terms of payoffs, not in terms of contribution. So it's in relative terms of payoffs. But you see, you haven't met the threshold. So now we are all underwater. Um, and again, let's have a, do a short analysis. And again, you didn't behave like theory predicts. So this is what I've shown you before. And now I'm including in this analysis these, uh, the, the, the catastrophe. So suppose you are not donating. What you see here is the dashed line. That's now the, the, the payoff. 
And if there are more than eight contributing, and you take a free ride, you get your payoff because the threshold is met. But now, if there are less than eight, then there's a traumatic drop in the payoff because now the disaster occurs. And that, of course, is also true for anything that is below if there are less contributors. What I can do now is the same analysis. Suppose you're contributing, so you're on the red line, and it's now the dashed line. So if there are seven contributors and you contribute, so there are eight contributors, you have met the threshold. And of course that is true for any uh, number of contributors above seven. But again, if suppose you think of not contributing, you would have a dramatic drop. So now the dashed line is a relevant one, and now you see that there's an area where the, the contributing red line is above the blue line of not contributing. So, if there are seven other contributors, it actually is worthwhile also to contribute because then you get a payoff of here instead of on the blue line. So the prediction here is that there is what I call a good equilibrium that you actually just meet this, this threshold. And of course, there is an area here where still the, the blue line is above the, uh, the, the blue line is above the red line and also up here. That means if there are, say, less contributors than the seven, of course, it makes no sense for you to make a contribution. You would also not make the contribution. And though there is a bad equilibrium here where nobody contributes. So there are two equilibria, but the one is good and the other is bad. So the only thing we need to do, the only thing we need to do, is to coordinate on the good equilibrium, which you obviously failed to do. But you might say that's not surprising. Why? Because you had no opportunity to talk to each other. There could have been coordination through talks, and you might have reached actually this uh, benchmark. So you may say, but in reality, saying climate change, there is uncertainty about the impact of the uh, catastrophe, right? And would that cause a problem? And if you look in, in models, it says no. As long as the expected damage in the case of the disaster is high enough and larger than the expected gain, then there's no problem at all. You just have expected values. That's no, no problem. So in this particular example, we know, you may recall that in case of a disaster, the loss is five. And what we need is that the gain of, from uh, not donating was four, the difference. So the damage is high enough and it's fine. Another complication is maybe that there's uncertainty about the threshold. Okay? So you're not sure, is it the four degrees? Is it the three degrees? Is it the two degrees? And that's actually causing a problem because then you can show that you're just back to the standard social dilemma problem. So if you do research, it says it was worthwhile to invest in finding out where is the threshold. Is it two or three degrees? It's not so important what happens beyond this threshold. It's a really serious damage or it's even worse. Okay? That's not, not the, the issue here. So 
And something really very much related to this kind of what is called threshold tipping point kind of thing is actually what you find in, in actual agreements. So if you look at international environment agreements, not only at the Kyoto Protocol, you find this minimum participation clause. It means the treaty only enters into force if a certain threshold of participants has been reached, they have ratified the protocol. Otherwise, it's not entering into force. And it's exactly this kind of tipping point uh, and it is a kind of a coordination device because it, avoids, it basically avoids that you sign a cream, uh, an agreement but later find out that nobody else signed it and then the, the agreement becomes binding for you. It becomes only binding if this minimum has been reached. And in the case of the Kyoto Protocol, there's a double trigger. It says you need a ratification of at least 55 countries and because it's a double trigger, they must represent 55% of total emissions in 1990. Okay? So now, another encouraging result, and uh, at least an non-economist like that, so I thought I should add, that, add this one here. Um, not listening to ecologists and economists can pay sometimes. I think Charlie appreciates this comment. So, ecologists would always argue for minimal emissions, get emissions down to zero. What you find, and that of course means ambitious targets. In reality, what you find is very tough negotiations you normally have to agree by consensus. Right? Very often we find we agree on the lowest common denominator, and of course that means emission, uh, modest emission targets. So, of course, from an ecological point of view, it's disappointing if you just reach sort of 10, 20% emission reduction targets. But what we have shown in theoretical models, that this can actually pay. Why? If you are too ambitious, only a few countries will sign. And what you also find, if it's very ambitious, the non-compliance rate is very high. So, effectively, you're not achieving a lot. In contrast, you make concessions in terms of the targets, but you get a higher participation. And we show that overall this trade-off is in favor of being modest. I wouldn't say that to anybody who negotiates with Kevin to be modest, but here it, it can actually pay. And it's actually reflecting what's going on in reality. If you think about the Montreal Protocol, it started off with rather modest emission targets, and over time uh, it was tightened up. So what you need is kind of creating a momentum and then over time you can be more ambitious. But there's no point what Barrett called having a focal treaty which is very ambitious but very few participants. It's much better to have a consensus treaty. So now let's turn to economists. If you talk to an economist and he doesn't mention cost effectiveness or efficiency, he's not an economist, that's for sure. So what does it mean? Cost effectiveness means you want to have a, a reach a certain output. And economists would say, try to minimize the total input for a given output, which makes a lot of sense, right? And they would argue that those that find it easier to make a contribution should contribute more than those that find it more difficult, or economists say, more costly, okay? Of course that makes sense. And we talk about optimal allocation. But in reality, P 
people care about distribution. If, say, um, Ian asks for contribution to the faculty, then the economist would say, okay, you want to have a certain output, let's try to minimize the input into all that. Right? But of course the individual would say, I'm not interested that the total input is minimized, I want to mean my personal input should be minimized, right? And of course, this is a, what, what matters. Distribution matters. And um, you have two ways to handle that. The one, probably not very nice way, is optimal obfuscation. So basically, you try to be very vague. Who are the gainers and who are the losers? But in climate change, that's probably not working because here we talk about rational agents. They know exactly if they agree to emission targets, what are the costs involved? Probably a smarter way is to design uh, compensa compensation schemes, right? And they also have to reflect some notion of fairness. So there is a di direct way of compensation, uh, which you find in the Montreal Protocol. You also find it in the Kyoto Protocol, which is basically a fund, a global environment facility on which developing countries can draw. So they get support for mitigation measures and also for adaptation measures. But there is also an indirect way, and that relates to what is called the cap-and-trade system. Let me briefly explain that, and hopefully simple enough. Um, what it means is essentially you want to put a cap on total emissions. And then you issue uh, entitlements, if you want emission quotas, to different countries. Okay? And these entitlements can be traded. And economists say that's good. It's not fixed quotas, but they can be traded. Be traded. Why? Because a country that needs more entitlements, because it wants to emit more, can actually approach another country and ask whether they want to sell them some entitlements. Okay, so there is a possibility for trade. And the basic idea is that this is a win-win situation simply because trade is voluntary. So that's a little bit the same kind of thing if you think this bottle here, I would sell it to Pedro for one pound. He doesn't have to buy it. If he buys it, it means two things. He gives me one pound, but the benefit to him must be at least one pound, otherwise you wouldn't buy it. And obviously, if I sell it for one pound, the benefit to me must be less than one pound, otherwise I wouldn't give it up. And that's the same kind of system here in this permit trading. So the crucial thing is now, it helps us to keep costs, abatement costs, at a, at a low level. And this is related to allocation. But the distribution is now interesting. Of course, the more entitlements you have, the better it is. So in other words, if there are 10 bottles, of course I want to have all the 10, because then I am, can sell them. But we can split it 5-5. Five, five. And that's the same with these emission entitlements. And now what you could do is, you could actually allocate quite a lot of these permits, entitlements, to developing countries in order to make it attractive to join a post-Kyoto protocol. And what is now the fairest aspect? So if you look at the current status quo, it's very clear that industrialized countries have very high emissions. And of course, industrialized countries would argue that we should, emit, uh, should allocate these permits in relation to current emissions. Okay? That's one thing. 
But you could also argue, and I think there's a, a good argument for that, why not saying that everybody has the same right to pollute? So you would allocate these permits on a per capita basis because you say everybody has the same right, say one ton of CO2 worldwide. If you do this and do the calculation, what you find is there's a huge financial transfer going from industrialized countries to developing countries. A huge transfer. So, but on the other hand, I think there's a fair argument to say everybody should be treated equally. So I think what we should start is using both criteria, the status quo and these equity criteria, say, uh, like one man, one vote, um, and same entitlements for all. And you use a mix of those and gradually, over time, move towards probably the equity criteria. So we can use these permits not only to keep costs down, but as an indirect way to have a transfer from developed to developing countries, and not just having a transfer as such, but to bring them in to the Kyoto Protocol, and the post-Kyoto Protocol, to make it more attractive for them, for them to join this protocol. Because after all, it's a global problem, so you want, have, want to have high participation. And the interesting thing that we have found, and I'm glad that Peter is here today, we have done quite a lot of research, is what you can show is diversity pays. So normally you would expect if, uh, if people are very different, it becomes very difficult to form cooperative agreements. But what we can show is just the opposite. And the reason is very simple. And of course it's on the condition that you have a, what we call an optimal compensation scheme. So if people are different, different skills, of course if they cooperate, it's much more attractive because they have different skills. If all the same, it's nice to cooperate, but it was really interesting if they are different. And in the context of the climate, climate change, developing countries will find it easier to reduce emissions because for them it's rather cheap because their technology is not so advanced. On the contrast, industrialized countries take Japan very difficult to, make, to increase their emission reduction more. They can do it, but at very high cost. So if you have very diff different countries on board and have a fair compensation, compensation scheme, then actually the, the, the gains from cooperation are particularly large. And the interesting thing, these gains from cooperation are only accruing to those that are cooperating. So this is an excludable benefit, and you can show then you can have a very large collision. Okay. Um, So, a couple of wishful thinking results. And that's interesting, if you look at historically at the debate in climate change. Then, first, it was realized we are not making progress on mitigation. Kyoto is not successful. So then people came up and saying, forget about mitigation, let's focus on an R&D agreement. So have an agreement where countries cooperate on R&D with the few that this would bring about something like a breakthrough technology with zero emissions. And this does not work simply because cooperation on R&D also means non-excludable benefit. It's also a public good. And of course, you again have free riding problems. Then the next thing that came up over time was 
forget about mitigation, let's work on adaptation. So this is a discussion that was called by Scott Parent windmills versus dikes. Um, which you, because you come from Holland, you will appreciate that. So windmills is the mitigation option. You reduce emissions. The adaptation option is dikes or think uh, if you have heat waves, you have aircon. But of course we know if you have run the aircon, you will use more electricity and actually producing even more emissions. So there is some, some interaction. So obviously you're not fighting the cause of the problem if you focus on adaptation. What we have done is in a strategic context looked at this interaction and asked the question, if you focus on adaptation, which generates just a, a private benefit, right? The dike just would protect Holland. But you could also use one pound in mitigation, right? In building the windmill. Everybody would benefit from that. And of course, there is now a strong incentive to say, forget about mitigation, let's call, uh, focus on adaptation. What we show is that this is not a successful strategy. Now, and this is a little bit amazing in the last IPCC report, there were in particular the Americans uh, that very much um, were in favor of looking at geoengineering. What is geoengineering comprises many technological um, solutions, but one is active solar radiation management. What it means is actually releasing intentionally uh, sulfur particulates in the atmosphere in order to avoid that the sun is coming to the earth. Okay, it's like shielding the earth and it's a little bit what has been tried in the past to influence rain. And of course why the Americans like it, it's very cheap. But the collateral damages are huge. And um, this is of course something if you talk about governance uh, a very different problem. If you talk about mitigation, as we had played the, the game, it's you make a contribution and it generates a social benefit. And from your individual point of view, it appears to be expensive. You have to give up five in order to receive an individual benefit of one. Okay? Here, and you need coordination at a global level. Here, you don't need any coordination. The US could do it by themselves. And so the governance problem is not to make a contribution, but actually how to make sure that they are not pulling the trigger. Okay? So, some discouraging results. I support, the, I support environmental protection, but not with my money. In other words, if there is not really a preference for the environment, if there is not really a demand for the environment, then of course nothing will happen. This is a, a very blunt statement, but of course all our models assume that there is at least some preference for the environment. So if there is no, if you want, if there is no demand for the environment, there can, environmental protection, there can not be a supply. And the other one is, I enjoy, uh, enjoy life today and don't think about tomorrow. That's of course not working in the context of climate change because this is a long-term problem that cannot be fixed in the short term. In particular, we have to reduce emissions now and the benefits will occur, uh, occur to future generations. 
And of course, if you don't take a long-term view, you have no incentive at all to reduce emissions now. And of course, for politicians, obviously, they normally think in terms of four or eight years terms. Uh, it's obvious that they have no interest to uh, burden their electorate with serious uh, climate change measures because the benefits will occur in 50 or 100 years. Um, so, will we succeed? Um, I think there, this photo speaks for itself. It's not sure whether we're going to succeed. Um, very briefly, given the time, let me just mention, is the climate change a special case? Is, why is it so difficult compared to the, say, the Montreal Protocol, where we try to reduce CFC gases? And the first one is, the, is monitoring a problem. No. Is sanction a problem? Not really, because if you look at other international environment agreements, they don't have any provision for sanctions. The only, and the only important exception is the Montreal Protocol that imposes a trade ban on to enforce participation and non-compliance, uh, to enforce compliance, both. And it's a trade ban on all goods that have been produced or contain or have released CFCs. But of course, if you look at uh, the goods that contain CFCs, this is a small amount of goods. If you want to try to do the same in climate change, it's essentially affecting all goods because all goods need energy and energy releases CO2. So if you want to impose a trade ban, it basically means to impose a trade war. Um, the other problem is the visibility of damages. They now become more clear, but for a long time it was very abstract. People didn't understand what this means global warming. Maybe some people in the UK were even happy, thinking they don't have to travel to Spain anymore uh, because they could go here to the beaches, maybe not uh, realizing that that might not be possible due to flooding. Uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty in climate change. And exactly this was the reason, at least officially, Bush gave not uh, to join the Kyoto Protocol. He said there's so much uncertainty. And of course, we know also many uh, climate critics or skeptics uh, would always say there's so much uncertainty. I think if you read the IPCC reports, uh, in particular, the, the one just released a couple of days ago, the, the fifth synthesis report clearly states that we have to expect serious problems. So, some would argue the costs of mitigation are too high. And of course, if you look at the Montreal Protocol, CFCs, finding substitutes was very cheap. It's of course debatable whether the costs of mitigation are really so high. If you follow the Stern report, you would say there are even negative costs. So if you're not reducing emissions, we impose a burden on economic growth. So you would talk about negative costs. But even if you don't believe in the Stern report, it's clear that taking serious action means a complete change of our economy as we know it now, because it's completely based on fuel, oil, and um, this would mean a dramatic change. And I think one of the biggest problems in, uh, that we find here is accumulation of greenhouse gases uh, with a huge time dimension. All greenhouse gases that are, have been already released to the atmosphere that are currently up there, the natural decay rate 
is so small that it takes more than 100 years, or some even 200 years, that they basically vanish. And of course, that's the frustrating thing, and that's why as I t told you we cannot avoid the two degrees Celsius increase because simply the current amount of greenhouse gases that is up in the atmosphere uh, is so high. And that means we have to take an extremely long-term view, and as I just argued, it's very difficult to think 50 or 100 or even 200 years ahead. And in particular, in the political context, this is uh, asking almost the impossible. And for that reason, there is a big intergeneral equity problem here. The future generations are not currently at the negotiation table and, of course, cannot raise their voice. So what are the topics ahead? Uh, very briefly, there is um, some research I'm doing with my PhD students and uh, let me just pick this, what is called now, uh, border tax adjustments, which essentially tries to pick up the idea I told you about the Montreal Protocol, but in not imposing a trade ban, but basically saying that those countries that are, have joined the, 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 uh, a protocol that sort of implement tougher emission reduction targets, they would have imposed a tariff on all goods that are imported according to the carbon content. Okay? So basically, if you have a, a, an emission tax in, within an agreement, you would impose kind of the same tax on outsiders who are less environmentally friendly. And we are currently investigating whether that would be an option but there's a lot of equity issues also involved because, uh, let's like say, the UK and many other industrialized countries actually import more emissions than they export. So essentially, you consuming goods that have been produced abroad with very high carbon content, and you could argue that it's not fair to impose a tariff on the production side. Maybe you have to impose the tariff or the tax on the consumption side. Then, um, very briefly, uh, two projects. The first one here, uh, Understanding International Cooperation of Environmental Treaties. This is an empirical approach with uh, uh, Christian Almer and um, uh, Philip Cooper. I think he's not here today. Um, where we want to use this database of 1,500 international environmental agreements and try to extract what makes an agreement successful and what, does it make, what kind of possibilities we have in terms of designing agreements. So you want to learn from other agreements and try to extract a good strategy here. And this is also related to uh, the second Environmental Protection Sustainability Forum, where we see that as a kind of a kickoff for these grants. And let me mention finally, uh, and you mentioned it before, Kevin, that there is this EU project. And the interesting thing about this project, where you see there are many from our department, is that international environment agreements take a top-down approach. Okay? And this one is a bottom-up approach, where we say, let's forget about our governments. If consumers, if you can get consumers to demand environmental protection, so they're interested in green goods, then there will be a supply. And what we try to do is here, because it's an interdisciplinary work, we're working with psychologists, and we add the economics part, 
where we try to understand how people actually choose between green and brown goods and uh, how we can actually, uh, I think the key word is nudging, how we can nudge them to behave more environmentally friendly. And then it becomes interesting to talk about societal tipping points, not what I said before about the technical tipping point or environmental tipping point, societal tipping point. How is new uh, technology picked up and are there role models where people look at, say, celebrities and say, oh, they're driving a car that is powered by electricity, I also want that. These kind of issues, we try to address that, so this is kind of the uh, bottom-up approach. And so, thank you.